0: brought to you by moonbeam multimedia this is 16 to 1 a podcast about education
1: teaching and learning How's your week been? Woo! Your grades are due, so you've you've been doing all
0: of that mess, huh? End of the first nine weeks.
1: Yeah. You made it a quarter of the way through the year, though. You know you're right. That's a let's, momentous occasion.
0: Let's be positive. So we made it a quarter of the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have lived eight lifetimes uh, in this nine weeks. No, it's been good. It's going well. I'm not going to say too much. You don't want to jinx it. You don't want to jinx the whole year. You know, if you're a baseball fan, you don't talk about A no-no, which is like when somebody's throwing a perfect game, you don't talk about it because you don't want to ruin it. So I'm not going to talk about it because I'm not going to ruin it. All right. That of which we will not speak. Yes. Would you like to go ahead and
1: tell us what you learned this week?
0: Yeah. I am back into reading. Yeah. As it turns out, I have time. I mean, that's relative, but I have time.
1: I've been trying to hack my reading. This is something that you might find interesting. I had been reading as much as I wanted to. And I've been hacking reading by like just playing it and making myself get up and do chores in the morning yeah. and just playing my audiobook while I nice. do that. It's right. like a reward system for doing an unpleasant task. Yeah. I'm sure I, there's some
0: sort of behavioral psychology that is. explains this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Habit stacking. Well, and also you're making something that you don't normally enjoy more enjoyable by getting to reward yourself with a book. It's like a reward. It's like a reward. Um, okay. What have you been reading? I'm about fifty years late to the game. Oh, for the reference, it happens. That times. matters. I'm not even fifty, so <laughs> I'm still spoilers, about fifty years spoilers. I'm thirty plus years late to the game, is okay. what I'll say. I just read *In Cold Blood* by Truman Capote. I have always loved true crime. My mom loves true crime, so I get it very honestly. But what I learned was, well, one, he wrote that with a friend from childhood who was. Just so casually Harper Lee. Oh. Uh-huh. Okay. And the other thing that I learned about it was that I thought it was a fictional piece of work. hmm It's not. It was, it's, was entirely based on a real crime. True oh. crime. Okay. And I didn't know that. And just something else about the book In Cold Blood. It was an instant success, and it is the second best-selling true crime book in history. And it comes behind Vincent Bugliosi's Helter Skelter from 1974, which is about the Charles Manson murders. Huh. Interesting. I knew that Truman Capote worked with Harper Lee. I did not realize that they were childhood friends. Yeah, I didn't know that either. And I also thought it was a piece of fiction, which it was not. Update. I just love Harper Lee, so I also wanted to read it for the sake of seeing some more of her influence, reading some more of her influence. So Cool. Yeah. It's one of those things that's always been on my list, you know? Mm-hmm. Cool. Anyways. What what did you learn? Oh, I also read a book. You did,
1: yeah. This one, it was a big book. It took me a, a drive to Southern Maryland and back to mm-hmm. finish this one on two times speed. Yeah, so it was it was a lot. But I read a book called "The Age of Surveillance Capitalism: The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power." We have very different living rooms. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, this our, is, this our not, Libby list could not be further from each I know. Other. There's never any doubt when one comes available who it's for. Listen, I have particular interests.
1: Okay, now here's the thing: this came out several years ago, I think 2017 or 2018, something okay. like that. So, oh, so
0: a lot has already changed. Yeah, it's yeah.
1: yes, it's been on my list to read for that entire time, and you know this little COVID thing happened, and then I just oh. completely my reading life went off the rails for a while. But anyway, you're right; it does feel like. A lot of the examples are from just like a slightly different era. Yeah. Everything just, it's like, oh yeah, I kind of remember that. There's like a lot of discussion of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. I don't know if you remember that, but like mm-hmm. the book is basically about these huge treasure troves of data that big companies like mm-hmm. Google and mm-hmm. Meta and Amazon swallow up about us. The author's kind of making the case that it's not only that people have this data, but that it's actually being used to influence and kind of dictate behavior Mm. to some extent. And the whole case that the book is making is that the less we know about how our behavior is being directed in these ways, the more democracy is going to struggle, the more we're going to have issues with the sort of self-actualization and autonomy that is necessary for democracy to function well, Mm. which I think is very interesting. There's a big behaviorist influence on this there was a lot of discussion of skinner uh bf oh, skinner yeah which believe it or not has a direct tie into what we're talking about today with psycho- some of the psychology influence and we talked about bf skinner a bit in our educational psychology episode which was episode 47 uh, if you're interested in more about it ed psych so anyway it, it was a lot it was like philosophy it was a lot of economics it was a lot of data science mm-hmm. it, it was another one of these broad-ranging romps on a pretty difficult topic but i really enjoyed reading it it certainly made me more aware of how every phone and smart home device that we have is just spying on us all the time so it's a little it's a little scary in that respect but it's it's good to understand these things and these systems and sort of our place in them and it gave me a lot to think about that's for sure so yeah, yeah that's what i that's what i learned about interesting Are we ready for our education headlines? We are ready. This one is yet again from our home state here in Ohio. It's a bit of an update of a story we've had before. Ever disappointing.
0: Okay. (laughs) Here we go. A Franklin County magistrate has ruled that Ohio's public education system restructuring can proceed while lawsuits brought by parents and former Ohio State Board of Education members work their way through the court system. The ruling was approved by a judge on Friday the 20th, and the temporary injunction preventing the restructuring was lifted. Critics of the reorganization still have a chance to prove their case in court, but Ohio teachers now seem to at least have a provisional answer to the question of who will be cutting the checks to Ohio schools. Do you feel better about this? No. No. (laughs) No. Oh, this feels like they put a Band-Aid on a water tower that was leaking, but that's a good start.
1: Yeah, I read the ruling... And the magistrate was like, this, the the state had made the case, the state meaning the people on DeWine's side, because it's the state suing the, the state, I think, in this case. This or is really special. Employees of the state suing okay. the state. I don't know. It's very complicated. But mm-hmm. the DeWine side of things was making the case that if we don't let this restructuring proceed as intended, it's going to be mass chaos, which is exactly what we were talking about last episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, in, but anyway, the magistrate was like, yeah, you're right. It will be completely chaotic. So
0: maybe we should just go ahead with the plan.
1: And oh, in the meantime... So they're
0: basically spending it. I mean, basically the game is it's chaos either way. Yeah. The governor was
1: just kind of like a- ask for forgiveness, not permission about the restructuring of the... what well, I guess it's called the Department of Education and Workforce now.
0: Oh, Mike. Why you gotta be like this, man?
1: So... There's still the question of the constitutionality of the budget bill, this House Bill 33. That um, started it all. Yes, which relates directly to our next okay, headline. go ahead. Because there's yet another lawsuit about House Bill 33 <laughs> more, in Ohio. More disappointment in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Okay, go. This headline actually relates to yet another story that we've been covering for, for some time about phonics instruction. And we recommended the APM mm-hmm. reports podcast called sold a story about phonics instruction Mm -hmm. the gist of this is is that there's this professional association in ohio it's a worthington based association called the reading recovery council of north america reading recovery is the buzzword that's relevant here because Mm -hmm. reading recovery is the program that makes use of this now widely discredited i guess i would say approach to phonics instruction, the main sort of facet of that being what's called the three-queuing approach Mm -hmm. to literacy acquisition. And that's just the kind of way of using like context clues and other questions like that to help understand things rather than basically like phonics, like phonetic. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, back to House Bill 33. The Reading Recovery Council is suing the state over House Bill 33 because they are taking issue with the fact that the budget bill prohibits explicitly the three-queuing approach that they apparently still enjoy. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, even though it, it has all this science kind of conflicting with the efficacy of it, um, and it's been shown that even like short-term gains that happen as a result of this approach later get turned over compared to peers who don't have this kind mm-hmm. of instruction. All this evidence, but there's at least a vocal minority of educators who are still very committed to this method and think that it helps. Right. And that's the problem. So anyway, they're suing because the budget bill prohibits 3 queuing. And that's in direct conflict with the reading recovery program. Hmm. So Yeah. Okay. Oh, it's fascinating. I it may be the case that this budget bill does violate the constitution, but I think that it wouldn't exactly be counted as a victory for students and parents mm-hmm. if
0: this particular lawsuit, right, were were to move forward. But anyway. Okay. Last article. Yes. Xi Jinping and the ruling Chinese Communist Party are attempting to step up. Patriotic Education in China's Schools, Universities, and Religious Institutions. A new draft of a patriotic education law is making its way through the National People's Congress Standing Committee and is expected to be approved. The legislation is reminiscent of patriotic education initiatives that emerged in the early 1990s in the aftermath of the student-led Tiananmen protests. Critics say that the law is less actual law than pillar of a cult of personality around Xi Jinping. Mm Mm-hmm. Pro democracy protesters, both within and outside of China, say that the new legislation will have a chilling effect on education funding for critical thinking and liberal studies initiatives. Yeah, Ooh, this could be interesting.
1: There are a lot of people saying that it's, it's not so much a law as just like a bunch of sloganeering, just like random thoughts about oh. education and philosophy, kind just of like making kind its of, way into okay. official policy. Yeah, which like is just some
0: hot takes that are like gathering. Yeah, Gotcha. Yeah,
1: I mean, a lot of people are seeing this as a. As a response to increasing unrest because of economic instability in China, sure. and uh, like this is not you know, this is not an area where I have a whole no. a great deal of familiarity or I'm expertise. Not going but to, you yeah, know, right. But it is interesting to consider how this trickles down throughout the country and yeah. just like you know the various intricacies of the CCP and
0: because it feels like a propaganda. You know what I mean? It's like propaganda. It, it- yeah.
1: Some of the commentary that I was reading, and again, it it was kind of hard to find sources on this story, Mm. but the ones that I was reading were just kind of saying that, like, yeah, this is increasingly something that Xi Jinping has been Uh doing, turning his
0: personal, like he's, you know, they're like billboards of his face all over the place. And like, it's weird. It's weird. Is this like the quote that's like, you can't trust anything you find on the internet and it says it was spoken by Abraham Lincoln? (laughs) Yeah. It's it's like,
1: it's definitely to that effect. So, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we did do an episode that was a kind of broader overview of educational psychology. That's episode 47. Go check it out if you'd like to listen. This week, we're focusing in on just one figure, Mm -hmm. a prominent figure among educational psychologists, developmental psychology. We're talking about Jean Piaget, which is a name that anyone who comes close to a school of education will probably have heard at some point.
0: Not because you wanted to. Not because you wanted to. (laughs) Not because you saw Piaget in the library and like, this looks interesting. I was putting together the notes for this and I was
1: just like, oh man, I remember Mm -hmm. the classroom I was sitting in in grad school when we were going over this stuff. Big, big influence. Still an outsized influence on... on many education programs. Yes. I heard people compare Piaget's work to ranking almost at the same level of Freud's but among developmental psychologists. Okay. Which I thought was interesting. I, I didn't realize it was quite that. He was quite that influential. But yeah, curriculum design, formal education programs, uh-huh. big big influence. So Piaget was born in Switzerland in 1896. He died in Geneva in 1980. Good long life. He that wrote, was a good life. Yeah. I'm thinking
0: of the time. That's a that's a pretty hearty life. Yeah.
1: It's a lot of time to make a big influence. He wrote more than 60 books and published a couple hundred articles on theories of cognitive development, education, psychology, philosophy, epistemology. He's very interested in epistemology, which is the branch of philosophy concerned with knowledge. So, like the nature, origin, scope of knowledge, uh-huh. and the rationality of belief, and these things. <laughs> This was a fun story At age 11
0: <laughs> I loved this part
1: <laughs> Yeah He was a He was a pupil At a Latin high school And he wrote A short article On an albino sparrow uh-huh. Which I thought Was interesting A little 11 year old Just out there Being a regular What I don't know Was he following In the footsteps Of Darwin Probably A little 11 year old Observer of
0: nature Of albino sparrows
1: He also studied Mollusks Which He wrote what? about
0: mollusks Pretty In depth <laughs> When mollusks I was were reading his special it, interest for w- a while. Yes. <laughs> I was like, did I really have to listen to so much piaget and nobody told me that his start was in mollusks? God, like, start in mollusks. Why didn't anybody tell me that? I would have been like 10% more interested. Okay. Because I would have wanted to know why mollusks and now why children's brains. <laughs> yeah.
1: I want to know why that would have made <laughs> That's you That's what more I mean. Like, okay. More yeah. Okay. While he's pursuing his PhD, he begins to be interested in psychoanalysis it's the it's the hot topic at the time. Yep. In his personal life, he and his wife have three children. Around the time when he you know starts to establish his career and whatnot, he and his wife have three children, and this is relevant because he uses his kids
0: to As study. You
1: do. <laughs> no, you yeah. don't. You don't though. Got to use them. He he studies his own children and their intellectual development from infancy, to language acquisition. Okay. creepy creepy it's just creepy i don't know it's creepy. no i think it's fine
0: it creeps me out um you didn't know it until it- <laughs> later and then you'd had a lot of therapy about like, it
1: yeah for real this is gonna come up later but there are modern reviewers who point out that there are a lot of studies of psjs that would probably be rejected from most modern journals because of methodological grounds obviously yeah
0: that part though he was living at exactly the time that he could For what he was doing. Does that make Mm -hmm, sense? mm -hmm. Like, only in the window of his life did what he did work. Yeah. (laughs) And I appreciate that. Yeah. He took the most advantage of the time as he could.
1: Medical ethics. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But anyway, he moves from Switzerland to Paris after he graduates. He teaches at this school for boys. school is run by Alfred Binet, developer of the Binet-Simone test, which which later becomes the Stanford-Binet intelligence scales the IQ test that everybody thinks of when they think of IQ tests. So Piaget assisted with the grading mm-hmm. of these IQ tests. And while he's doing this, he starts to observe patterns that he comes to believe make up boundaries around stages of development. So children of certain ages would consistently miss questions, for example, that older peers or adults would answer correctly, things like that. In 1929, he joins the faculty of the University of Geneva as a professor of child psychology, and he stays there until his death. He committed.
0: He sure did. So Piaget believed that learning occurs through assimilation, which is adjusting new experiences to fit prior concepts. You will be assimilated. You will be. You don't have an option with Piaget. You I will am be. locutus of Piaget. <laughs> and also through accommodation, which is adjusting concepts to fit a new experience. Hmm. So the back and forth between assimilation and accommodation leads to both short-term learning and long-term developmental change. And these long-term developments are what become the main focus of Piaget's cognitive theory. Piaget was a proponent of what he called, which I love that he was working at a time where he just decided what it was. he makes it up. Genetic epistemology, Mm -hmm. which is a theory suggesting that all knowledge that a child has is generated through interactions with their environment. Piaget proposed that knowledge and cognition co-develop through distinct stages from birth to the end of adolescence. This staging thing is basically This is his thing. This is the gist of his thing. Yeah. This is this is what you probably the know. Stages of development. So just a few notes on his stages before we start breaking them down yeah. further. Uh, the stages always happen in the same order, and no stages ever skipped. Each this stage, is according to Piaget. Yes. I just, this is, this other is, people do kind of want it to be a little squishy later. Sure. For him, at least. Each stage is a significant transformation of the stage before it, and each later stage incorporated the earlier stages into itself. Got it. Those are kind of like his rules, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. So he has a staircase model of development, and there are four major stages of cognitive development. Staircase. Staircase model. Yes. Why is it called a staircase model?
1: Because you keep boating as you go. Oh, right. Okay. But they're like plateaus. Is
0: that what the steps are? Mm. I guess I was thinking staircase because it's wider at the bottom and that's like your foundational knowledge and then you keep building on top of it. Like a pyramid? Kind of, but just on the one side since that's how stairs work. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm trying to figure because, out like, what you mean because by Because everything wider at, at the, the bottom.
0: bottom remains, but as you learn more and more. Yeah, but it's not. All- Unless you have like a grand Beauty and the Beast I staircase. I not imagining this in every textbook I read in college? Hold on. I, will, I really want to know. This is the one I was thinking of. Like this is how I remember seeing it in college. This uh, oh. <laughs> one so is like a pyramid, kind of. But <laughs> one side of a pyramid. <laughs> I see what you're doing here. One side of a pyramid. Yeah, it's like a cross-section of a pyramid.
1: You know what? We're
0: doing one half of a cross-section of a pyramid.
1: Spatial geometry is
0: not our strong suit. Okay. I would like to say it is not your strong suit. I skipped the stair step. You were the only person who missed that step, and it was the first okay. one.
1: Well, we should include that graphic <laughs> in the show notes. But the idea is that one stage stacks on top of the next, and that's what defines progress through these stages of development.
0: His development model has four major stages. The first one is called the sensory motor intelligence, and it is from birth to age two. This period is defined as when infants think by means of their senses and their motor actions. Okay. These actions, so thinking by way of touching, manipulating, looking, listening, biting, chewing. Oh, yeah. They allow children to learn about the world and are crucial to their early cognitive development. So... These actions allow the child to construct simple concepts of objects and events, which leads into object permanence as being one of the major achievements of this stage, because it shows that they now understand that even though something is not actually in front of them, it can still exist in the world. Yeah, Yeah. It's why peekaboo is so funny to babies, Uh because you cover your face and they're like, oh, wow, Uh
1: that's cool. They're gone. So it's basically like... (laughs) Prior to developing object permanence, you forget
0: that things exist when mm-hmm. you can't see them. Yeah. And so that's one of the biggest markers of the stage, because that usually happens closer to the 24-month mark than it is to like younger infants around six months. So that's one of the last big things okay. that a child accomplishes before moving into stage two. Okay. So stage two is pre-operational thinking, and that's from ages two to seven. Pre-operational thinking. Okay. According to Piaget, one of the most obvious examples of this kind of cognition is dramatic play or make-believe. So children engaged in imaginative activities are thinking on two levels at once, right? Because they're imagining whatever they're doing, but there is also the reality of what's in the room, what they have to play with, what, you know. Imagination. Right. So this dual processing of experience makes dramatic play an early example of metacognition, Or reflecting on and monitoring of thinking itself. Thinking about thinking. Mm -hmm. That's what metacognition means. Okay. And so because metacognition is a highly desirable skill for success in school, teachers of young children like preschool, kindergarten, even first or second grade often make time and space in their classrooms for this kind of play. And sometimes will even participate in it themselves to help develop that play further. So that was up to around age seven. Okay. So then we get
1: to the next stage, which is around the ages 7 to 11, and this is called concrete operational thinking. Mm -hmm. And this is when kids start to be able to represent ideas and events more flexibly and start to use logic to reason through things. They're not yet able, though, to operate or think systematically about representations of objects or events. So manipulating representations is more an abstract skill that develops Mm -hmm. later. The other new thing that happens during this stage is that the child starts to be able to de-center and focus on more than one feature
0: of a problem at a time. Okay, so you did stop at about age seven. (laughs) Good. That's why you don't understand the (laughs) stairs. Because they didn't go up any further. My stair is just one. A stair of one. One stair. You have a hump. Okay.
1: (laughs) Okay, and then we get to the final stage of childhood development here. Formal operational thinking, ages 11 and beyond. This is when children become able to reason. They can reason not only about like, tangible stuff around them, objects and events, but also about hypotheticals or abstract thoughts. Mm-hmm. Like, imagine if you will. Mm-hmm. This is the period when children can start to operate on forms or representations. And that basically means that a teacher can pose hypotheticals or contrary to fact problems. Yeah. Manipulating ideas in a couple of different ways
0: at once. All all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm thinking like as an English teacher, of course. All of those are great questions to be asking because they'd have to have support for what they're saying. So
1: Yeah, and
0: you can see where these kind of build one, one on the next. I remember very
1: specifically when I was learning about this in grad school that I was bothered by the idea that it was rigid and that it had to be in order and that you had to go from one to the next. I was like, I don't feel like I've known... Any person who could just be like, oh, yes, they've moved from stage three to stage four or stage mm-hmm. one to stage two. And I, I always I just felt like the boundaries were much yeah. less rigid. And I think maybe Piaget, uh, he even said that uh, a lot of his work ended up being kind of misunderstood later in life. Mm-hmm. And
0: it's kind of one of those things that when you when you kind of get noticed for the thing that defines you, right, then you're always answering to that thing, which kind of seemed to be the case for him. Yeah. yeah. Once these operational stages existed in the way that he had presented them as these in the staircase method, right? That was it.
1: That's kind of interesting because it touches on a couple of criticisms of his work. Mm -hmm. So the first one is that that the structure is overly rigid. Mm -hmm. Um, I think so too. I think at least this was true of the way that it was taught when I was in grad school. (laughs) It's like, here's some information. These are useful ways of thinking about stages of development. They're kind of useful approximations rather than rigid right. stages or whatever. yeah. And then the other thing was like kind of what you were just talking about. Another criticism of his work is that there was too much emphasis placed on what children couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And that's what defined the stages rather yeah. than what they could do. So his, his focus on the not being able to reach certain markers of a stage tended to obscure... The ways in which certain children could maybe reach way beyond an appointed stage or right. or across, you know, domain-specific areas or something like this. Yeah, just, just like focusing on the absence of indicators did, did tend to obscure yeah. other indicators that could have popped up. And this is another, like, methodological issue that some people take with a lot of his research. So, and this is hard because it's, you know, research with kids who are... Your children. Famously... Mercurial and kind of difficult to pin down, but some researchers have said that they thought that his, his questions of children were sometimes too complex to be accessible, basically. Sure. And they're like, well, if you would have asked the same thing in a slightly different mm-hmm. way, or you would have simplified the task you were asking them to do or something, they, they might have been able to do it. Sure. And it's more just about how you're conducting the test. You think you're measuring whether or not a child has moved to a stage, but what you're actually measuring is how well you wrote a test question. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think educators, you know, you as an educator know what this is like. (laughs) I feel that deeply. You feel it viscerally when you see that the test the students are taking is failing them instead of the other way around Mm -hmm. because there's something wrong with the wording or whatever. Another criticism here, there's too much emphasis on genetic or hereditary factors of human development and not enough on social and cultural influences on
0: cognitive growth. I was going to mention with that, there's no difference with him based on the sex of the child, right? Because Ah, boys, as we know now, develop through these ages, not as quickly as girls do. And just other factors like you were talking about, like cognitive ability What's your home life like? You know, there are so many other factors to these things aren't being addressed. And I think at the whole, I guess when I was taught Piaget, I kind of always thought it as these are the indicators we should be looking for to kind of help us better understand to stage students. Yeah. I think that's kind of where it was for me. And maybe that's just how I was taught him as well, because my professors had a better understanding of kind of the heart of it. But there are so many other factors to this. Like when I talk to my friends who have kids, they'll talk about like what one of their kids does that the other one didn't do at this age. And they're like, oh, that's totally normal. Like, you know, and so it's just it's just those things like that just happens with kids. I
1: will say we have we have friends who have a daughter who just turned seven. And you and I were even talking about this. We feel like we've seen a shift with her. And it's right around this age between what stages two Ooh. and three, when you go from six to seven, it's like the concrete right. operational thinking starts to kick in. And you and I were talking about how, because we hadn't seen her for a while. Yeah. And then we a came change. back and yeah. we visited with these friends and we saw her and it was just like, whoa, she who was like this... a little human. Yes. It, it felt was like. a little adult yeah. is what it felt like yeah. all of a sudden kind yeah. of. And I'm just like, what happened? The last time I saw you, you were
0: just kind of like yeah. screaming so about things. We didn't see her for like a year. She did kindergarten. Like, there were all of these huge things that had happened. Yeah. yeah. But when we saw her again, I was like, she feels like a totally different person. Like, Mm -hmm. she was just a grown up all of a sudden. So, I think that different ages of kids hit like that too. Like, we always talk at school, even the jump to ninth grade is a huge deal. Like, there's a lot of change there. So, and that's even later than what he would have listed as, you know, a stage.
1: I will say, I don't know if this is true of your experience with teacher education. I think that. Piaget's theories tend to be brought up when it comes to looking out for learners who might be veering off the track of kind of the expected markers of development. Yeah. I think maybe, unfortunately, I don't know, it tends to be the most useful legacy of the theory is course correcting when things Mm -hmm. go off track.
0: I think. Which I'm not really sure Piaget would have liked, but. I don't think so, but I also think that when we finally get around to doing an episode with a school psychologist I'll I'll be very interested to hear about like these markers and indicators that they're looking for because one of our good good friends is a school psychologist and she works in an elementary school so she Mm -hmm. talks a lot about kindergarten screening and things like that and kind of identifying at those stages is a student ready should they wait another year Um, have they completed the year of kindergarten should they repeat it you know it can be really hard to test for anything at those ages Certainly.
1: because attention spans are very short. Yeah, uh, there's tempers a can, in the corner. Yeah, yeah. There's a stranger
0: yeah. at the door. They or they tied, can be overwhelmed. Their, their socks are too tight. They like, didn't get a nap. Yeah. <laughs> like, it could be anything. I just realized I was describing you. Oh, yeah. There's yeah. a stranger though. True. But truly, there are so many things that can impact those sometimes brief interactions that could somehow be like, oh, they're only at this stage, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever the case. Mm -hmm. So I think what he wanted to help educators understand is that there are certain things that should be and could be happening by ages and that we should try to help guide students into that learning when it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, age appropriateness is definitely something that emerges from this. And I think that's
0: good. Last thoughts on
1: Piaget? It was interesting to dust off the old college yeah. textbook. Didn't know about the mollusks. I'd love to know more about that. I want to know about the uh what was it, the albino sparrow. The albino sparrow. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna go find that that paper. If you wouldn't mind. Talk to an educator friend of yours, or a student friend of yours, or anyone who is interested in teaching, learning. Give us a shout out, if you will. We grow by word of mouth, and we really appreciate you all who take the time to tune in every other week. But if you wouldn't mind, just, you know, spread the word. Also, if you do want to sign up for our newsletter, you can do so by visiting our website, 16 to mm-hmm. all spelled out. And just scroll down to the bottom of the page, any page.
0: And, yes, we are prepping... We are. For our 100th episode. We sure are. And we would love for you to send us in questions that you've always wanted to ask teachers. Yes. And you haven't yet. This is your chance. We're going to force Katie to answer your questions. I will do it. On air. And I can answer them anonymously. I won't. Yes, you don't have to to attach your name to it. So send us some questions. I know you have them. Your most
1: burning questions. That won't jeopardize my career.
0: Yes. Okay. Okay. I was thinking about some of my friends. I was like, nope, (laughs) you don't get free reign. Okay, fair. Fair. (laughs) Fair. All right. Fill in the blank. Here was last episode's question.
1: According to a 2021 Pew Research study, what percentage of parents with children whose schools were closed during the pandemic said that their child encountered at least one technology-related obstacle to completing their schoolwork during that time? That was 34% of parents. So more than a third of parents observed At least one snafu having to do with technology and at homework. Yep. This episode's question.
0: Yep. Go for it. One of the institutions at which Piaget studied is a world-renowned public research university. It is claimed that at the time Piaget was admitted, he was the only Swiss to be invited to study there from 1952 to 1963. Marie Curie was the first woman to become a professor at this famous university. So what was that university? Final thoughts, parting shots, anything from you? I think if we've learned anything this episode, it's that if you're becoming a psychoanalyst, don't use your own children.
1: Yeah, that's that's the big takeaway for me for sure. <laughs> don't experiment on your own progeny.
0: Oh, all right, we'll see you next episode. <laughs> bye, bye. Hey listeners thanks for supporting 16 to 1 we're your co-hosts i'm chelsea adams and i'm katie day find our show notes archives and resources sign up for our newsletter or get in touch with us via the contact form at 16to1.com all spelled out
1: we are so grateful for our listener support if you
0: enjoyed this episode please consider subscribing to the show and telling your friends or colleagues about it the show is edited and produced by you chelsea adams and you're also responsible for our show's music. And you, Katie Day, serve as lead researcher and social media manager. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next show. Okay. Okay. So, I I interrupted. Please go ahead and take us back to the the first stage. Back to Piaget's staircase model. Yes. (laughs) Or a section of a pyramid, for those of you. Under what stairs look like cross section in my head, I was like a pyramid. Does she not know what stairs look like? (laughs) You were like a pyramid, and I was like just the half.